Everybody loves an underdog hero. That person or group that no one would ever expect to overcome incredible odds to either survive or better yet, to be successful. We are already in the throes of March Madness for NCAA basketball. 68 teams were selected to vie for the national championship. And speculation abounds about who will be the champ. Even more speculation is around who is the underdog team, the biblical David-like team that will defeat the Goliath team in the tournament. And oh my goodness, do we love watching that Cinderella underdog, even as much as our favorite team, except of course when they play our favorite team. Yes, we do love a great underdog story. And history is full of those types of folks. Consider Frederick Douglass, the American abolitionist who was born a slave in 1817. His mother secretly taught him to read, and both she and Frederick were beaten several times for violating the law against such things. He escaped slavery and eventually established the abolitionist movement with dazzling oratory and prolific authorship. He was an underdog hero. And there were more. Franklin Delano Roosevelt contracted a crippling paralytic disease at age 39, and it would have appeared that his promising political career was ended and his life goals would have been completely and drastically altered. However, he goes on to be elected president of the United States and navigated our nation through the Great Depression and World War. He overcame the odds to become an underdog success. And then one of my favorite, Wilma Rudolph, an American Olympian, known in the 1950s and 60s as the fastest woman in the world. As a child, she survived whooping cough and infantile paralysis. It would have appeared that this African-American child would never have survived, much less become an Olympian. She won three gold medals and a bronze medal in Olympics. She was another wonderful underdog hero. Now, one of the most recent underdog heroes of history is a football player who was selected in the NFL draft after 198 other college football players were selected ahead of him. Now, most of the folks selected that late in the draft never make it as a pro, but this man played 23 seasons in the NFL and led his team to seven Super Bowl championships. <laughs> you know him. His name is Tom Brady, one of those underdogs that overcame the odds. And it's not just those in history who are our underdog heroes. We love our underdog hero movies. You can probably name them. Rocky, either one through six or gazillion. They keep making them. Rudy, the football player, the karate kid. Seabiscuit, the horse. Independence Day, starring Will Smith. And maybe the most heralded of all, the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. But it's not just in our history and with our other heroes on movies, but it's also that the Bible is full of underdog stories, where the most unlikely of characters becomes a hero, a warrior, a prophet, or a king. Today's scripture readings from 1 Samuel, the 23rd Psalm, and the Gospel of John 
give us a snapshot of three persons who it would appear to us were unlikely to be selected to lead a nation or to survive a dark moment in their life or even to overcome a handicap to become a living witness to the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus. You see, God sees more in each of these three underdogs than those around them saw, and even more, God sees in themselves what they themselves ever imagined they could be or do. Our reading from 1 Samuel 16 opens as the prophet Samuel is grieving over the sinfulness and ineptitude of King Saul, whom he had anointed as king of Israel. His disappointment and grief are overwhelming. And then God hits him with what Samuel probably feared was eventually coming. God was rejecting Saul as the king and is sending him to anoint another king among the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem. One by one, the sons of Jesse are brought before Samuel, and each time Samuel thought he had just the right candidate, but God had something else in mind. In 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 13, we find this episode. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel asked the question, Are all your sons here? And then it happened. Jesse says, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, this young man, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. To the eyes of Jesse, his sons, and maybe even to Samuel, and probably even to David himself, the kid Davy was not who they thought should be King David. Yet God saw in David what no one else saw. And you know the rest of the story. He became a leader, a warrior, a king. Now, not without his faults, but David does overcome the odds and becomes one of the greatest of the underdog heroes of faith. Not only did God choose the underdogs of a young man, but also he chooses a psalmist who is going through the most darkest moment of his life. The 23rd Psalm is probably the most well-known and most often quoted passages of the Bible. The psalmist is in need of a shepherd, and he remembers that God has been leading him in times of happiness and in times of great need. Now, many of you know this psalm so well and could probably quote it as I read it. So let's hear this incredible psalm one more time in the most familiar version, the King James. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's clear that the psalmist is going through a very troubling time. And that familiar phrase that we know so well, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, can also be translated directly from the Hebrew as though I walk through the darkest valley. We've all probably walked through our own dark valleys at one time or another, but the psalmist is walking through his darkest valley, the darkest valley of his life. God sees him, though, as more than the darkness that engulfs him and leads him to green pastures and still waters. He overcame the darkness. He overcame the odds. And his cup was running over with blessing. And that leads us to the Gospel of John. The Gospels are filled with the stories of Jesus and his disciples on the move. They were walking from village to village, around the Sea of Galilee, on their way to Jerusalem, and through Samaria at their own risk. Now, most of these stories are marked by an encounter with someone that the disciples often see as flawed, a man possessed with a demon, a Samaritan woman at a well, a tax collector in a tree named Zacchaeus, and in today's reading, a man born blind. Now, thinking that they know his story, the disciples asked Jesus a question at the very first part of this chapter 9. They asked, who was the sinner that caused his blindness, his parents or him? There's so much that's wrong with that question. In those days, it was common understanding that if there was some disability, something that caused great pain, it had to be because someone sinned, either the parents or the individual. Jesus takes a moment to chastise his disciples and teach us a new way. In chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, verses 3 through 7, we see these words. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud. And then with the saliva, spread the mud on the man's eyes and sang to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And then the man went and washed and came back, able to see. Wow. What an amazing miracle. The blind now see. Now, this caused quite a fervor in the neighborhood. They knew this man as the blind guy who sat in the neighborhood and begged every day. They were so amazed that some of them were convinced that this guy wasn't really the same guy. It was just somebody who looked like him. 
or worse yet, there were those who were a little bit concerned that this Jesus who had this kind of power might be dangerous. So when in doubt, what do you do? You send him to the Pharisees. They'll know what to do. The encounter with the Pharisees is really a study in the religious arrogance and inability of the teachers of the Torah at this time, who are unwilling to see the kingdom of God at work in the world. It had to be only on their terms that something like this might happen. Nothing new was acceptable. The, the pharisaical response was a classic. First, they said, you should not have done this thing, this mud thing, on the Sabbath. And the guy who told you that is a sinner because he was healing on the Sabbath. And secondly, we don't believe you were actually blind to begin with. So what do they do? They call his parents in to question him about the blindness of their son. Imagine how frightened they must have been to be questioned by the Pharisees, maybe even threatened with not being allowed in the temple themselves. But out of fear, his parents refused to answer their questions and told him, well, ask him, the man who was blind. He's old enough to answer for himself. So one more time, they call the man born blind before them to question him about the man who had healed him. And at that point, they declare Jesus a sinner and not from God. Now, what happens next is the ultimate redemption of an underdog hero. Not only had he been healed from his physical blindness, but now he was becoming a living witness to the kingdom of God on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. His answer was clear and they're found there in the 25th through the 33rd verses. I do not know whether he is a sinner, but one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, the Pharisees, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man answered, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And then they reviled him, saying, you're his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man born blind answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worship him, worships him and obeys him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So you know what happened next. The Pharisees, hearing that, angry, answered this man and said, You were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us? And they drive him out of the temple. Being driven out of the temple in those days was a horrifying thing. But like a good shepherd... Jesus does not leave this man alone. He seeks him out. And for the first time, this man who had been born blind sees the one who had actually given him sight. And in that moment, he not only sees the one who had healed him, but he realizes that his healing had been twofold, both physical and spiritual. The man born blind not only became at that moment a disciple and a follower of Jesus, but a believer in Jesus that so inspired his life 
that he became a living witness to the kingdom of God on the earth. And then Jesus takes this moment to teach all those who witnessed this sign of faith, including some of the Pharisees who were snooping on the man with these words. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this, and they said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? And then Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Our readings for today have given us a picture of three amazing underdog heroes of the faith. God saw in each of them something no one else could see, and that includes something they couldn't see in themselves. When God sees that spark in each of us, just like it saw it in young David, in a troubled psalmist, and in a man born blind, it doesn't mean that life will be forever a bed of roses. We still have to battle our Goliaths and our temptations. We still may encounter dark valleys we have to walk through. And we may be challenged by those blinded by spiritual arrogance of those who cannot see the kingdom of God at work in the world. Yet God will always lead us. He will always guide us. God's vision of us at times may make us feel a little bit afraid. God's vision of us can be dangerous, sending us into the most unlikely of places as the most unlikely of us into the world to be his living witness of faith, hope, and love. And to maybe, just maybe, join the ongoing list of underdog heroes of the faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.